0: Welcome to Supersight Science, where we feature research and discoveries nationwide enabled by advanced computing technology and expertise at the Texas Advanced Computing Center of the University of Texas at Austin. I'm Jorge Salazar, a science writer at Tech. A new mechanism has been determined for the first time for the passive transport of biomolecules through the nuclear pore complex, which are apertures that perforate the otherwise iron-clad membrane surrounding the cell nucleus and act like crossing guards for macromolecular traffic in and out of the nucleus. If the crossing guard misfires, it can cause human diseases such as cancer, viral infections, and neurodegenerative conditions. The research team developed their model through supercomputer simulations on the Frontera and Stampede 2 systems of TAC, and they hope their work will guide the development of future therapeutics. The work was published in the journal Nature Communications in August 2022. On the line to talk more about it are study co-authors David Winogradoff and Alexey Aksymentiev. Winogradoff completed the study as a postdoctoral research associate working with co-author and Professor Aksymentiev in the Department of Physics at the University of Illinois at urbana champaign He's now a computational polymer chemist with the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Doctors Winogredov and Naximentia welcome to Supersized Science.
1: Sure, you welcome.
0: Would you speak to the main
1: findings of your study on nuclear pore complexes? And this was published September of 2022 in Nature Communications.
2: So really what we focused on was the thermodynamics and time scale of passive transport through the nuclear pore complex. And we took really a what I would say is a two-pronged approach. Um, the first was to run coarse-grained simulations. And from those simulations, those unbiased simulations, we observed rare and, and rapid crossing events. From those uh set of simulations, we looked at the empty space and something we called void analysis. From that analysis, we developed uh, a percolation theory. So essentially, we observed that there's a switchover by protein size of there always being a continuous path to it being very rare for there to be a continuous path connecting the, the top and the bottom of the nuclear pore through a, a central channel. And our big finding was that that is part of what defines uh, a crossover in the transport behavior from a soft barrier for small proteins to a hard barrier, essentially making it very difficult for them to get through.
1: Could you speak to what these things are that you're studying, these nuclear pore complexes?
2: I like to think of the nuclear pore complex as a gatekeeper or, a, or like a crossing guard because it directs the molecular traffic into and out of a, a cell's nucleus. So that's fundamentally why, why it's important. And you have, RNA that's generated inside the nucleus and needs to get out. And you have proteins that are created out in the cytoplasm or the cytosol of the cell, and that needs to get into the nucleus. So you, the pore serves as this conduit or passageway um, going across. So that's kind of fundamentally why it's important. There's two kinds of transport. Um, one is facilitated. So there's another protein that helps ferry it across. And, and then there's also passive. Um, so we studied passive and you, you need to have kind of a, a passive um, limitation in order for facilitated transport to matter. So what I would say, the, I'm trying to think of a good way to describe what we mean by the soft versus the, the um, hard barrier. So by, by soft barrier, what we mean is essentially that it scales like the, the size or the mass of the protein to a power. Or it's, it still is it's proportional to the, the, the protein's size or mass. Um, once it gets to, reaches a certain size, then it goes like an exponential to that mass. So essentially, the, it becomes much steeper. If you think of the time that it takes uh, most likely for the protein to get across, jumps up dramatically uh, once you reach that hard barrier. And we, what we realized in our work was that that switchover in behavior Correlated uh, with when it switches from there, always being at least one continuous path going through that central channel to it, that being a very rare occurrence of a continuous path, any continuous path that would go all the way through.
1: Could you speak more to um, um, how you developed this model? What were mm-hmm. some, some of the some of the challenges in implementation um, sure. in this, and, um, mm-hmm. and some of the data that went into um, development? Mm-hmm
2: there were kind of two main parts. So um, and, and there's like an ordered part and a disordered part. Um, the ordered part is that, that scaffold uh, that I was talking about. And also um, we modeled the nuclear envelope as something that was, that was ordered. We were informed by experimental measurements and experimental models. So part of it was from a cryo-EM structure. Um, that was actually how we got the, the outline of the nuclear envelope. Then there were two different scaffolds that we used. And um, those were published works um, by first author. It was uh, Lynn in 2016. Um, and there was another one, uh, Kim uh, 2018. That first one was um, what's called a composite structure. There were details of uh, thermos- thermophilic yeast that were mapped onto uh, a human cryoam structure. And then the Kim 2018 one, that was, that was all yeast. And that was developed using something called uh, integrative modeling so it was informed by not just structures but also experimental measurements but in general so we though so that was the sort of the ordered part or the structured part and then we still had to model um, the disordered part they're called nuclear uh, nucleoporins or fg nu- nucleoporins those are known to be uh, disordered and dynamic um, and we captured those with a coarse grain model that had been developed uh, in another lab uh, in the onc laboratory
0: Dr. here, did you want to jump
1: in here and maybe um, and maybe uh, just talk about uh, the use of the coarse grain model? I know we've spoken to you in the past a lot about um, all atom um, molecular dynamics. Uh, so um, would you like to maybe speak to this choice?
3: Yeah, sure. Uh, we are in general interested in increasing realism of our simulations, and uh, that of course requires bigger and bigger computers, better and better codes. But also the model uh, themselves, you know, they have to be refined. Now, the nuclear pore complex is probably one of no, it is the largest nanopore that we've studied. Uh, you know, we've spoken previously a lot on using nanopores for DNA, maybe protein sequencing. Now, this is on the other side of the spectrum. Those are really uh, big in terms of molecular dimensions pores, they are 15 nanometers across and, um, and they uh, require appropriate modeling methods and tools. So we are pursuing what I call a multi-resolution strategy to modeling those systems where we describe the system at several resolutions at the same time. Now, the paper that we just published uh, uh, in Nature Communication describes our first uh, study where we use the coarse grain model to look at passive transport. But it's only the first study of many. In fact, we are working also on the all-atom model of the same system, to, which will provide greater resolution uh, in terms of uh, spatial dimensions. Uh, at the cost of uh, of providing a limited time scale so with a coarse grain model we are able to see spontaneous transport of proteins through this fluctuating mesh of uh, of filaments and that is something that would be very very difficult to probe using all-atom approaches now um, The model itself uh, is in a way a separate accomplishment. So in building the model, so David combined several models that were already out there. Like there was a coarse grain model specifically developed by Onuk Laboratory in in Netherlands to studying the central mesh of the the nuclear pore. Uh, But uh, to that, David had to Add custom models of so the lipid bilayer and uh, also the scaffold. So that itself, I think, is a is an important step forward towards more realistic uh, models of large uh, biological uh, systems. So I also like to uh, highlight the fact that uh, we not only did the uh, the modeling right and. Uh, looked at what happens so to say but we rationalized uh, the model um, by um, in terms of in terms of mathematical theory right and that's where the second author of the man on the man, on the on the paper honey Cho that that's basically what his contribution um, that was a highly non-trivial part because no one has done anything like that before right so we had this, uh, uh, a mess of confirmations like it's like uh what's a good yeah uh 7, yeah <laughs> so it was it was really like a, yeah a meshwork in a way uh, that is dynamic uh and uh and honey he looked at it as uh, from a point of view of uh uh, the percolation theory, which means he looked uh, whether or not a continuous path forms that uh, you know from one side of the pore to the other, um, and uh, you know once we once we knew how exactly the process of uh, permeation happens, you know then we could rationalize it and generalize it and express it in terms of. The mathematical equations that linked uh, the volume available to proteins to the rate with which they permeate through this highly fluctuating dynamic uh, pore.
1: you speak to um, the uh, computational resources that you used?
3: Uh, sure, yeah. I
2: can speak to that. Um, so really we used the we used the GPU nodes on Frontera um, and also uh, uh, Stampede 2 um, to run simulations, and we. So the software we used was uh, something that's developed in, in the AXMENTIA lab uh, called ARBD, that's Atomic Resolution Brownian Dynamics. Um, I would say the main, uh, what, what really helped in having those uh, Frontier and Stampede 2 resources available was we were able to do a large range of sizes of proteins. And for each, for each size, uh, it was something like 13 proteins, we were able to run multiple replicas under different conditions. I think it kind of spoke to the robustness of our results. So, you know, we have, uh, we were able to have multiple replicas and also to do uh, more than, we did more than one confinement volume. Um, and, and I think that that was, so having those resources available made it so that um, we, we had this robustness. And also, uh, so actually we have, we had um, three different models. So we had two versions of the, the Kim 2018 one, the yeast one, um, by having so many computation resources, we're able to um, add on to what we had already done in the paper and, and to get, you know, essentially preliminary results in the order of days uh, to compare to um, other work that we had already done. So it's very much it, it, it sped up the process and, and I think um, gave a lot more weight to uh, the robustness of our results.
0: You've been listening to David Bonogradoff of the FDA and Alexey Aksementiev of the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Supersized Science is part of the Texas Podcast Network, the conversations changing the world, brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this podcast represent the views of the host, not of the University of Texas at Austin. For the Texas Advanced Computing Center, I'm Jorge Salazar.